Hello, everybody, and welcome back to From the Front Row. Happy New Year. We hope you enjoyed your holiday season, and we're excited to bring to you another semester of great podcasts and guests. If you're new here, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone both in and outside of the field of public health. Now I'm going to turn it over to Amy to introduce our guest. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by T. Sue, a friend and colleague of mine at the University of Iowa, whose current research focuses on clinical psychology, and she has an interest in Asian American mental health. She's a fourth-year doctoral candidate in the clinical science program here at UIowa. And before this, she got her BA from St. John's College in Annapolis, completed a post-baccalaureate with National Chung Kung University Hospital and National Tiai University. And she has an additional MS in experimental psychology from William and Mary. Today, T and I will be talking about therapy and mental health um, with our uh, own unique focus on the Asian American experience. And we'll also talk a little bit about her research comparing loneliness in Asian American students compared to European American students. Well, thank you for joining us today, T. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Amy. This is so exciting. (laughs) I know, this is so fun. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. To begin, would you like to kind of talk a little bit about what your clinical work is like? And um, I know when we've talked before, you've mentioned that your uh, clinic or where you work offers bilingual Mandarin and English counseling, for example. So I'd love to hear more about just what clinical work is like and um, maybe the unique services that you guys offer. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for letting me put it in a plug for this. Um, so the um, clinical psychology PhD program here, um, like we as students are really lucky at UIowa because we have an in-house clinic and that's the Carl E. Seashore Psychology Clinic. Um, it's really where we get a lot of our training. We deliver um, both assessment and therapy services here. And we currently have a new capacity to provide culturally responsive therapy services in Mandarin. So that will be like a Mandarin speaking therapist who's being supervised by a Mandarin speaking supervisor. So um, this is um, new for us, but, um, you know, in addition to like sort of the clinic's values of providing evidence-based services, you know, we also have the value of providing uh, culturally responsive care. So I'm happy to, you know, talk more about that and, you know, why that's important um, in therapy with diverse clients. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm just going to like stop there and say, yeah, if you're somebody who would you know, benefit from therapy services and Mandarin, like, please reach out to us at the clinic. Um, you know, you can find us on our UIowa website with all of our contact information and hours. And yeah, it would be super cool if we could hear from some folks. So yeah, um, actually, if you could talk a little bit about um, perhaps the unique um, set of you know, approaches that you might have to use with students from different backgrounds or different language backgrounds even? Yeah, yeah. So that's a cool question. Um, and I think I think in order to sort of like address that question, we have to talk about this concept of like culture, right? So what do we mean when we talk about culture and culturally responsive care? So, um, 
you know, this is, there's been a lot of research done by social psychologists about, you know, this idea of culture being sort of this like sum of like lifestyle, behavioral patterns, and like products of like a group of people that involve things like language, music, artifacts, history, and like social rules. And like the, like this sort of amalgamation of things as it's being sort of passed down through generations is, you know, this idea, like it becomes this, this culture, right? And so we know that culture um, influences the meaning that um, people attribute to their symptoms of like psychological distress, as well as their interpretation of like the causes and the implication of these symptoms, right? So like we know that, you know, like for example, there's a lot of um, stigma um, in the Asian American community about um, pursuing mental health or even mental health difficulties in and of itself, right? So that's that's one example. Um, and so it's really important to like take cultural elements into consideration when you are in a therapeutic relationship with somebody right like we want to understand as well as we can how people think about the problems that they have and how we can best sort of support them given that interpretation right rather than putting like our idea of what <laughs> what sort of the problem is or how they should interpret the problem on them so you know like this this like culturally responsive therapy idea really was born out of this like the multicultural movement in the 1970s right which involved sort of the acknowledging of these different cultural elements and sort of the emphasis of that in like this, this therapeutic relationship, which can help us use culturally appropriate clinical skills in working with the client and as well as in like formulating like a, a diagnosis, right? So it really just permeates <laughs> all aspects of the work. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I definitely relate to at least the having a different um, paradigm kind of that I'm submersed in and how that might affect how I receive care. And I think that's especially made distinct in how sometimes like when I converse with my parents, I can see, oh, they're like very culturally immersed in something different from what I've been culturally immersed in here in the States. So yeah, that's really cool that you guys do this like, very like tailored approach to counseling with these students. Yeah, I, I guess like the another thing that's important to emphasize is that, you know, this framework can be used with like the, you know, evidence-based interventions that we have lots of research about, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like a main focus of our clinic, or, you know, third wave cognitive behavioral therapies, like acceptance and commitment therapy, which I research and, you know, like other so it's like very much congruent with like these these therapies that we know can really help people, right? So having those techniques as well as acknowledging the cultural pieces is sort of the the emphasis. Right. So I'm hearing like a very holistic, you know, like progressive type of counseling that involves a lot of different like methods used in the past and that are still being developed. And then also like this element of like the cultural responsiveness. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And so on the subject of, you know, having different students from different cultures in your counseling, maybe we can talk a little bit about your research or interest into the Asian American population. We talked a bit about how there's a little bit of stigma still on seeking mental health help in this population. And of course, you know, the Asian American population is a diaspora, but what have you learned about this population so far? in your research and then anecdotally in your counseling? Yeah, so um, that's, an, that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> so it's like, first, what, I'll, what I will say is that there is a really cool body of research on, you know, sort of Asian American mental health, the Asian American uh, experience that is being conducted by really cool, like Asian American researchers, psychologists. Um, And, you know, like we, I think as a subfield, like we've, we've come to recognize that the Asian American experience is not homogenous, right? And yet, like, a lot of the time in research, you know, we're lumping together, like, People with an East Asian background and a Southeast Asian background and the South Asian background. And, you know, like there should be more research sort of disentangling, <laughs> you know, like like differences between those groups, too. Right. Like you said, we're not a monolith. Like there's definitely a lot of variability. And, you know, on top of all of that, there is variability in, you know, like immigration status, right? Like how long have you been in this country? Are you first generation, second Mm -hmm. generation, third generation, right? All of those factors, as well as sort of, you know, country of ancestral origin can all interact to affect, you know, how somebody is in the society, right? So, you know, those are sort of a lot of the, the questions that are, you know, still being investigated and, you know, are salient, I guess, in this research. But recently, there's also been a lot of work on the adverse effects of um, discrimination as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. There's lots of important work there that, you know, not only gives us sort of the the raw data of just the, the, the rise of hate crimes, the rise of discrimination, like during that time, but also its adverse effects on Asian American mental health, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think part of the power of that research is to show that, like, this is a real thing, right? And, like, this is something that is worth our time to discuss and also, you know, worth the time to really like think about and dissect. Um, So I I think it's great that we have like all of that work out there. You know, I think another really important aspect of the research on Asian American uh, mental health and psychology is sort of the, the clarification of the effects of prevalent stereotypes, you know, on Asian American mental health. So like when we talk about Asian American stereotypes, you know, the big three are the model minority myth, uh, the perpetual foreigner stereotype, um, as well as the healthy immigrant stereotype, right? So, so, you know, just, just starting with the model minority myth, it's probably the most 
well known, right? It's it's sort of this perception that all Asian Americans across all Asian groups, you know, are uh, super high achieving in both terms of like academic and um, economic achievement, right? But we know that that's not necessarily the case, right? There's there's no evidence showing that, you know, Asian Americans as this monolith are just better at these things than any other ethnic group, you yeah, know? And because- so it's important to acknowledge that like, oh, what this stereotype serves is division among like Asian Americans and Black Americans, which helps uphold white supremacy. Mm. And it not only has an adverse effect on society as a whole, but also on Asian Americans who are saddled with that expectation, you know, to always be perfect, to always be high achieving. So yeah, I mean, I mean and that goes hand in hand with the perpetual foreigner stereotype, which we, we saw again and again uh, throughout history, right? Like, um, Asian Americans have been blamed for diseases from like starting in the 1800s all the way up to now with COVID, right? It's like, oh, these foreigners, they're exotic, they're dirty, they bring these sicknesses. And so isn't it ironic that we have both that and the model minority myth that both serve to sort of hinder this, this like process of assimilation into the society, right? It's a way to sort of isolate um and and disenfranchise right um right. and it's also like whichever narrative is most convenient at whatever time mm-hmm. um and it's also interesting to see that that, that with the covid pandemic that has you know like that's not the first time that that has happened of like people seeing asian americans as foreigners who like mm-hmm. diseases and how that has mm-hmm. been needed throughout history so right and (laughs) like I mean I'm just thinking of like the yellow peril you know like all of those uh, like stereotypes that have permeated American history but that we don't discuss or sort of point out um even when we're in the same cycle again but yeah and you know like all these stereotypes um including the third one the healthy immigrant stereotype right which is like the assumption that even though like folks may not have as much access to healthcare or resources that it doesn't matter because you know they're like built different and you're, they're, they're hardy they they can take it right um so all of these stereotypes actually contribute to disparities in healthcare you know just overall and also disparities in mental health care why would we you know why would like folks who are marginalized in this way trust mental health care services to understand, you know, these experiences, right? When Mm -hmm. most of the treatments that we have today are based in sort of like Western theories of psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's also like, why would, you know, like the model minority myth, I think that's like a very tricky narrative because minorities might want to subscribe to that because it's like, almost a compliment you know so Mm -hmm. that also kind of perpetuates maybe not seeking help because you're expected to be the model minority or you've been told you are or you expect that even of yourself so you kind of have like this interplay of the different narratives that are potentially also still affecting or perpetuating just the stigma around seeking mental health yes 
Yes. Yeah. I really agree with that. Yeah. And and I think a lot of, you know, family and individual factors can also sort of reaffirm some of these stereotypes um, and make it even harder for folks to sort of seek out the care that they might want. So I got the chance to read one of your research papers. So I thought I would ask a little bit about the background on that. For example, in your paper, you talked about this thing called acculturation as measured by the Vancouver Index of Acculturation. And so I'm interested to hear you explain what that is in the context of, for example, loneliness as experienced by Asian American students um, versus their European American counterparts. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, This is like a project that um, I started pursuing um, when I was still in my master's program. And this paper has always been like a passion project for me because we have sort of this cool data from this really diverse group of college students. And, you know, we have both like data collected like on the day-to-day level about like their mood or, you know, their perceived stress as well well as, you know, sort of these withdrawal behaviors, as well as more general measures of like loneliness, right, or of acculturation, um, which I'll talk about in a little little bit, right? And so, you know, we're able to sort of track on sort of these daily behaviors and moods into like these more general sort of uh, ideas or, or like like trends um, or concepts, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So, um And like one of the special things about this paper is that um, we did have a measure of acculturation and it's something that we took into account when looking at, you know, these daily correlates of loneliness. So um, acculturation is defined generally as this like process through which like individuals from one culture, when they migrate or when they move to like another culture, sort of start to pick up on the cultural patterns of that culture, right? So it's like learning this other, this other world almost. Um, and yeah, and this, this, this concept really came from research on intergroup relations before, right? So we're talking about groups of people, but as psychologists sort of picked it up, it became like a more individual level um, variable of identification with you know, sort of this new culture, as well as identification with your, um, what's sometimes called heritage culture, right? There's been research on acculturative stress, right? So we can both imagine how it would be really stressful to, you know, be picked up from one culture and dropped in another, right? And we know that acculturative stress is, you know, a risk factor for, you know, both poor mental and physical health. Um, And so we really wanted to sort of factor that in as we're looking at this concept of loneliness, right? Like how much of this loneliness is a result of being in a culture that you you just like don't know or aren't familiar with, right? Because a large part of our sample constituted, you know, students who had lived in the U.S. for less than a couple of years. Yeah, so that was sort of the the thought behind that paper. And we wanted to really see whether we would be sort of seeing these different daily patterns, how, um, you know, something like loneliness can really affect 
like someone's mood or how much they seek out um, social support. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually recently reading a book by Dr. Marissa G. Franco called Platonic, and it's about building healthy friendships. And mm-hmm. in it, she talks about how um, among 106 factors that influence depression, having someone to confide in is the strongest preventer. And she goes on to say that, you know, the impact of loneliness on our mortality is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, <laughs> or that meta-analyses have shown that um, the decrease risk of death that exercise has on our mortality is about 23 to 30%. Diet is up to 24%, but having a large social network um, decreases our risk of death by 45%. So it's actually the greatest decreaser of risk of death. Yeah, I'm wondering also in your experience, even just as like a PhD student in your anecdotal work, like what are some of the best preventers of loneliness um, or negative mental health? Um, how do you avoid kind of the isolation aspect or what factors might contribute to being more integrated in a social network? So loneliness is really interesting um, in that um, it's not necessarily synonymous with social isolation. So what I mean by that is that people can live mm. mostly solitary lives and not feel lonely, right? Mm. Um, so we do know that there are folks who are like that. There, there's research, you know, on folks who are like that. But you know, for for other folks, it's you know, when when you are more isolated, you do feel more lonely, right? So you know, there's that sort of like give and take there, and um, even the research on social support and loneliness has been really interesting in that um, it's not about the size of your social network necessarily, um, but it's more about the quality of the relationships that you have, right? That mm-hmm. really can sort of ward off um, the negative like health and mental health effects of loneliness. How these findings can be applied to, you know, Asian American students, you know, especially international students or students who, you know, travel far away from home to go to school. Like, that's another question, right? Like, um, there are so many individual factors and like we've talked about cultural factors that can really affect somebody's experiences of social belonging and of social support right and that's why you know we have to like circle back to that idea of like you know culturally sensitive formulations that sort of take all of those individual as well as systemic as well as cultural um, elements into account yeah actually that's great I was going to mention that too how it kind of uh, well first thank you for your clarification on you know loneliness versus isolation or solitude and how there are different nuances and they can be different. And someone who is who experiences solitude may not be experiencing loneliness. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, that does bring everything back to like the culturally attentive care that you and your colleagues provide because um, each situation is different and finding out how to get the best quality relationships over quantity is going to be most likely done on an individual basis. All right. At the end, we always have a fun question for our guests. So the fun question for today is, what is your favorite piece of Asian American literature at the moment? 
Oh, right now. I mean, I can tell you what I'm reading right now. So I finished um, this novel called Sea Change by Gina Chung uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that's like a really interesting story actually about isolation and, you know, social connection and, you know, abandonment. So I think, you know, for readers who are interested in sort of that theme as told from the perspective of an Asian American woman, um, uh, that might be an interesting read. Uh, I've also been reading work by Ken Liu. I read his, um, I've been reading his sort of anthology of short stories called The Paper Menagerie. And that's also been really interesting um, to sort of, you know, see uh, interpretations of that, like more sci-fi element by um, an Asian American author. And I know there are other authors who've done that, but um, like one of my uh, new exposures. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this was T. Sue. Thank you again for sharing just your background and a little bit of what you're researching and interested in in the Asian American health space. So thank you once yep. again. Thank you, Amy. That's it for our episode this week. This week's episode was hosted and written by Amy Wu and edited and produced by Lauren Lavin. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.